All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. We're going to continue our time of worship. Hasn't it been encouraging this morning just to sing God's praises, to hear testimonies in the waters of baptism? We're going to study God's word. Acts chapter 4 is where you can turn as we continue uh, walking through this amazing book in the New Testament. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week. So I'm going to start reading in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, if you'd follow along. I'll read through chapter 5, verse 2. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we'll pause there for now. We're gonna read the rest as we move along and study the passage. Quick spoiler, both of them die. So Ananias and Sapphira both die. God's judgment falls and they're gonna be carried out. They're not gonna make it to the Great Commission. Uh, They're gonna be carried out in a body bag right in this particular moment, just a couple verses from now. And so, you know, the thing about studying through books of the Bible is you come to verses that are really uncomfortable. You come to passages that are deeply unsettling. Look down in your passage. Hope you've got your Bible still open. Verse 5. So there's a word of confrontation that we'll come to in just a moment. But verse 5. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead and great fear came on all who heard. There are certain verses in the Bible that are never going to be on a coffee mug. And verse 5 is one of them. Acts 5.5 5 is not going to be on a coffee. That's not how you want to wake up in the morning. Ananias dropped dead and great fear came on all who heard. But it's here in God's word. And it's here for a reason. And it's here for the benefit of God's people. C.S. Lewis, the author of the, the great children's series of novels, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia is the larger series, And he depicts this well-known conversation between Susan, one of the chief characters, and Mr. Beaver, who's a talking beaver. And so Susan discovers and hears about Aslan and finds out that Aslan, talk of Aslan, and she finds out that Aslan is a lion. And here's how the conversation goes. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And that's C.S. Lewis's way in this children's novel of getting across the sense in which God's goodness is there, but there's also a sense of holy fear. There's also a sense in which God, God's holiness should be revered by his people. 
that there's a distance between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. So this passage in Acts 5, it's a passage about the holiness of God. It's a passage about the Holy Spirit's zeal for the purity and holiness of his people. And so this passage warns against hypocrisy. This passage warns us against the danger of what I'm calling here in the sermon title, appearance-driven spirituality. And it doesn't just warn us, but it invites us into the wisdom of the fear of the Lord, the, the wisdom of the fear of the Lord who is good, but who is not safe. I'm not going to comment much uh, this morning on the end of chapter 4, except insofar as the end of chapter 4 sets up a, a dramatic, a radical contrast with the beginning of chapter 5. So you see the first words of the, of the beginning of chapter 5 are, but a man named Ananias. So we're going to see a few things as we walk through this passage, and the first thing that we're going to see is the appearance of spirituality. The appearance of of spirituality. And I, I say the appearance of spirituality because Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 are going to do exactly, that is outwardly speaking, exactly what we just saw being done at the end of chapter 4. End of chapter 4, Luke talks about this compelling, self-sacrificing community of faith. And it's almost as though Ananias and Sapphira are looking at that and hearing the word of celebration about all the self-sacrifice that's going on. And they do it Almost. They do it almost exactly the way it was done, except they're doing it for recognition. It's, it's only outward motions that they're going through, and there's a different motivation behind it. You're going to see, this is in your notes, they were willing to lie if it meant gaining a reputation for being spiritual. They're willing to lie about the offering that they're bringing if it meant gaining a reputation for being spiritual. Um, the movie Top Gun came out in 1986, and for the next few years, everybody in my school, uh, all the guys at least, wanted one pair of sunglasses, Ray-Bans. You, you had to have the Ray-Bans until you went to the store, if you were me, and you couldn't afford Ray-Bans. So there was no way I could have Ray-Bans, and I thought, well, that's it. So I can't have the social clout that comes with a pair of Ray-Bans, until I went on my very first mission trip to Mexico. <laughs> and... Uh, and I saw what looked like an almost perfect pair of Ray-Bans that didn't cost $100, it cost $10. And so I bought that almost perfect pair of Ray-Bans and brought it home, best $10 I ever spent in my whole life, in my high school years. Couldn't wait to go to school, got to school, sitting at recess, eating, eating lunch, and uh, feel like I walked straight off the set of Top Gun. I'm sitting around with my friends and I'm wearing my, my Ray-Bans glasses. And my friend looks and says, what kind of glasses are those? And she kind of leans in, because if you've, if you've ever owned a pair, you've seen a pair, it says Ray, and there's a little bitty hyphen, and then it says Ban. And mine, on closer inspection, the almost perfect part, is that it wasn't a hyphen. It was a small letter O. And so when you looked in closer, I actually didn't have a pair of Ray-Bans, I had a pair of Rayo-Bans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that tiny little O saved me $90 in Mexico and cost me everything in recess, <laughs> all right? It was almost perfect. It had the appearance, but it wasn't quite there. I, I thought there was a way to get social clout at a discount price, and apparently Ananias and Sapphira thought the same exact thing. 
They just put a little O at the end of the gift that they had just seen given at the end of chapter four. They thought they could trick everybody. They're imitating the faith because again, in chapter four, verse 37, if you look down there in your text, it says, Barnabas did what? Sold a field. There's action number one. Brought the money, action number two. Laid it at the apostles' feet, action number three. And then you come into chapter five. Appearance, Ananias and Sapphira, action number one, sold a piece of property. But action number two, kept back part of the proceeds. Action number three, laid it at the apostles' feet. They don't die in church because they only gave part of the proceeds. They weren't obligated to give anything. Look at verse three. Here's Peter's moment of confrontation. This is where we left off when I was reading earlier. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Notice this, wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people but to God. So, so play it out. They sold a piece of property. Let's say hypothetically they sold a piece of property for 100000 It's offering time on Sunday morning. Apostles say, is there anybody here who has something to offer to the poor among us? Any offerings that you could just come and lay that down? And so people start streaming forward and laying down their offerings and laying it at the apostles' feet. And, and in that sense, you can almost imagine them saying, is there anybody who has any offerings for the poor? And you can imagine Ananias and Sapphira saying, yes, we were able to sell that piece of property that we had. Couldn't believe we got 20,000 for it because its location is not that great. But here's, here's what we do have, hope that it's a blessing. And they came and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And God gives Peter, the apostle, a word of knowledge. It's almost like a word is whispered in his ear and says it wasn't 20,000, it was 100,000. They made $100,000 off the property, but they're giving the impression to the entire community that they're giving everything to the poor. And that's when things get really interesting because you notice, again, they weren't under obligation to sell it at all. Let me just reiterate. Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own. And after it was sold, it was still completely at your disposal. In other words, Peter is saying, friends, you had all the options. You had the option to just keep the land. Totally your option. You had the option to sell the land for 100K and to give 100K. You had the option to sell the land for 100K and give 20K. You had the option to sell it for 100K, put it all, almost all in savings and go to Disney. You had all, kind, all the options were yours. Any of those scenarios, you make it out alive. You could have just given the 20,000 like you did this morning with no funny business. Give the 20,000, that's totally fine. But what you did was you lied. And you lied not to people, but you lied to God. And he's good, but he's not safe. <laughs> he's not safe for hypocrites. And now you're going to be a 2,000-year object lesson about how God feels about hypocrisy in the church. Verse 4, look down with me. You have not lied to people but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead and great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. You know, growing up in the charismatic church, I've been in churches where they have catchers, but not these kind of catchers. This is a, this is a whole different scenario right here. <laughs> verse seven, about three hours later, his wife came in. Talk about being late to church. Uh, verse seven, three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, 
did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. You bet it did. Imagine that it would. And in that sense, Acts chapter 5 is maybe only surprising to us because it's in the New Testament. If you've got an Old Testament, this stuff is kind of par for the course. I mean, there's, earth opens up, 17,000 people get eaten. Sons of Korah, gone, right? You see episodes like Uzzah touches the ark. Uzzah's gone, right? There's all these people being taken out by the holiness of God because they presumed upon the distance that was there and they, they were hypocr- uh, guilty of hypocrisy or failures in one way or another. But here's an episode that I think Acts 5 echoes from the Old Testament. Acts 5 echoes an Old Testament story of a man by the name of Achan. You might be familiar with the story of Achan. It's found in Joshua chapter 7. God brings his people, Israel, through the wilderness. They're about to go in and, and they're gonna, Israel's going to defeat Jericho. You see that in your notes. They're going to defeat Jericho and they're going to go into the promised land and inherit the promised land. But just before they go into Jericho, instructions are given by God about what to do with Jericho's treasure. And the word is don't keep the treasure for yourselves or destruction is going to fall on Israel. And so they conquer Jericho and then it says in Joshua chapter 7, they They put the silver and the gold and everything into the treasury of the Lord's house as they they were obeying God. God had said to do this. But then you come into Joshua chapter seven and it says, but Achan, just like our text in chapter five says, but Ananias, in this text in the Old Testament, but Achan took some of what was set apart. Achan kept back some of the treasure And nobody knew it. Nobody was the wiser. He had hidden it from everybody's eyes except the eyes of who? God, the God of Israel. And so the next battle, now they're they're done with the big one, Jericho, walls came tumbling down and all the rest, right? And now they just have this, they have this little sort of mop-up operation. It is the town of Ai. It's not very big. This is not going to be a big deal. Jericho was the big deal. Ai is not going to be a big deal. Well, they lose to Ai. Israel's defeated in battle because of hidden sin. And Joshua just scratching his head saying, what in the world just happened? He says this to God, by the way. How did we possibly get defeated? How did we take Jericho and lose to Ai? How did that happen? And the Lord says, there's sin in the camp. There's sin in the camp, and that's why you lost today. This is, quote, this is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. There's hypocrisy, there's compromise among the people of God. Don't miss the point. In both stories, Old and New Testament, an act of deceit interrupts the triumphant progress of God's people. It's what was happening in Joshua, just conquered Jericho. It's what's happening in Acts chapter two, spirit-empowered people going in triumph, seeing the gospel, seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ, and then two people drop dead in church on a Sunday morning because of hypocrisy. It's another moment like the fall of Judas, where the early church realizes God is good, but he's not safe. Hypocrisy is not safe in the presence of God. You look at Jesus. Look at Jesus in the pages of the Gospels. He spits fire in one direction. Hypocrisy. 
And he's got a whole section, woe to you hypocrites. It's a section in the gospel where he just goes one after another to a word of judgment to hypocrites. Here's what he says in Matthew 23 about hypocrites. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. And now that Jesus, having died, risen, reigns, pours out his spirit, and he sees hypocrisy in the church, and it doesn't stand. It literally falls. It's possible to say God is real, but live as if he were not. That's still true today. It's still true in the church today. It's possible to say God is real, Jesus is real, the gospel is real, the gospel is true, but live as if it's not. And so we move from the appearance of spirituality to, secondly, the holiness of God. And here's the reflective question for us. We're reading history, but what bearing does this have on our lives as the people of God in the local church? Is there a healthy and appropriate sense of the fear of the Lord among us? Is there a healthy and appropriate sense of the fear of the Lord among us? The central statement of our passage can't be missed because it occurs in the very middle of the text and at the end of the narrative. Look at verse five. Ananias dropped dead and great fear came on all who heard. Verse 11. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. We are in the New Testament and great fear is upon the church. The actual words in Greek are phobos megas. Megaphobia. Great fear. A megaphobia of who? Of God. A great fear of God. We, again, we expect that kind of language in the Old Testament, but not on this side of the cross. But we need to remember this truth. The cross doesn't make the fear of God obsolete. The cross doesn't change God's character. It reveals God's character. Our eternal God is immutable, which is a fancy way of just saying he never changes James tells us that. He changes. There's no shadow of turning. Great is thy faithfulness. Borrows that language from the book of James. There's no shadow of turning with him. He is, as the writer of Hebrews would say, the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. He is still holy. He is still to be feared and revered by his people. Romans chapter 3 tells us the reason for the cross is that God had passed over, quote, had passed over sins previously committed until the cross. That is, in the death of Jesus, God's justice was not deferred any longer. It was spent on the cross in our substitute. When you look at the cross, yes, you see God's love on display, his arms wide open for your redemption. But when you look at the cross, you are also seeing God's justice poured out full strength on our substitute, Jesus Christ. That's the sobering thing 
about Calvary is it is the collision of the infinite mercy and infinite justice of God slams into the cross. Six hours, wave after wave of the infinite wrath of God slamming into the body of Jesus Christ in our place. The atonement as taught by the New Testament magnifies the greatness of both God's mercy and God's holiness, not just the one, but the other. And the atonement, as taught by the New Testament writers, creates zero flippancy in the church toward God, toward sin. Acts 5 demonstrates that the God in whose name we gather is still holy. He is still holy. Here's what I love about the book of Acts. This is true of all narrative in the Bible. It's what I love about narrative in the Bible is it's theology in living color. It's theology with, with swords and fire and, and clouds and Sinai. And it's, just, it's theology in action. You see it happening in history. You might remember in, in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit had just been poured out and the apostle Peter is inspired to speak about the significance of this moment of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and he quotes from the Old Testament prophet named Joel, and he talks about the apocalypse that is the age of the Spirit. He says the age of the Spirit means sun's gonna be turned to blood and the moon to darkness. Like, it, fireworks are coming out because the Holy Spirit is here in power and the powers of heaven are gonna be made visible to the human eye. Expect fireworks is what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. But it's not only the healing power of heaven made visible, which we saw in Acts chapter three. It's the holiness of heaven made visible, which we see in Acts chapter five. In and of ourselves, Nobody wants this. That, that's why in the very next verse in our passage, the text says, no one dared join them. No one dared join them. Here's the point. Only God's spirit can create a people with true reverence and humility before the Lord. Only God's spirit can create a people with true reverence and humility before the Lord. One commentator, I think, captures the gravity of Acts 5 so well. He writes these words. If we watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healings, stands up to the bullying authorities, makes converts to right and left, and lives a life of astonishing property sharing, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear that there's no such thing as cheap grace. If you invoke the power of the Holy One, the one who will eventually right all wrongs and sort out all cheating and lying, he may decide to do some of that work already in advance. God is not mocked, as Paul puts it. We either choose to live in the presence of the God who made the world and who longs passionately for it to be set right, or we lapse back into some variety or other of easygoing paganism, even if it has a Christian veneer to it. Holiness, in other words, is not an optional extra. There's no contradiction 
between praising God for his mercy and treating him as holy. You say that again, there's no contradiction between praising God for his mercy and treating God as holy. You might remember another story in the Old Testament that's just coming to mind, the story of Nadab and Abihu. They're the sons of the high priest himself, Aaron, and they offer strange fire. It's unauthorized fire, and they, they improvise with the holy things of God, and instantly they're consumed. And here comes Aaron, their dad, walking up into the presence of God, and God says, let me clarify why your sons just died. Among those who approach me, I will be regarded as holy. And it says, and Aaron held his peace. I imagine he did. Again, we, we know the effect this left upon the early church. So we move to third, third point, the effect on the church. What is the effect on the church? Well, you see it in verse 11. Then great fear came on the whole church, not only inside the church, but on all who heard these things. I just say Birmingham, Alabama is a dangerous city to live in if for no other reason than because everybody's been to Sunday school. <laughs> you can be inoculated to the stories of the Bible. It's, possibly, it's possible to be inoculated to the Christian faith to get a dose that's just small enough to keep you from catching the real thing. That's possible uniquely in places like our city. And what's the effect? We're, we have just enough knowledge about Christ's lordship to keep us from seeing that we're not actually submitted to him as Lord. Just enough knowledge about the cross to keep us from seeing how much we need the cross. A generation ago, a great preacher named A.W. Tozer, he said, the devil isn't fighting churches anymore, he's joining them. And I don't know what text Tozer happened to be preaching on that particular occasion, but it's interesting. Not every person in Acts chapter 5 is filled with the Spirit. This is a community filled with the Holy Spirit, but not everybody in Acts chapter 5 is filled with the Holy Spirit because Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Here's the sobering thing. The church is and ever will be a mixed assembly. That's why we don't have the luxury of not being clear on the gospel have to be clear. The claims of discipleship are clear, uncomfortably, unsettling, gloriously clear, but we have to look them straight in the eye. I want to close by considering some of the practices of a church that fears God. Just two things for us to think about. First, because God is holy and has given us his spirit, we strive for purity in our lives and in our corporate witness. Because God is holy and has given us his spirit, we strive for purity in our lives and our corporate witness. So we, we can praise God that Acts chapter five is not normative in the church. If Acts chapter five were standard operations for how God purifies the church, this church would be a lot smaller, I would imagine, right? It's kind of, that's the sobering word for us. Thankfully, this is not normative, but we should also, before we just rescue ourselves from that, we should take very seriously what's here. That God demonstrates his commitment to create a church free from hypocrisy. So what's the normative? 
way? What's the standard operation by which God creates a holy people committed to faithfulness to him? The normative way that God works to purify his church is through faithful gathered worship. The means of grace, right? The teaching of God's word, the singing of the church, encouragement and admonishment, not just when we're gathered, but when we're scattered. When, when you're in small groups, the encouragement that you find when you're sitting across from other believers, the admonishment that you find when you're sitting across from other believers, that's a means of God's grace to hold you, to keep you in the love of God, to keep your affections firing for the mercy that you've been shown in the cross of Christ. At, at the focus study this past Wednesday night, we talked extensively about the practice of church discipline. I don't have time to cover it all right now, but the the big idea is this, that God doesn't want people who know me in the church to ignore patterns in my life that reveal hypocrisy. Honesty about our sin is far better than hiding our sin. Let me say that again. Honesty about our sin is far better than the alternative, than hiding it or covering it. God loves me too much to let me continue to hit the self-destruct button. So in his love, he gave me you. It's the beauty of the body of Christ. We can drag our sins out into the open and he brings them to the cross over and over. Like our sins, they are many. His mercy is more, right? But when we drag them into hiding, what happens? We start destroying ourselves. We start teaching, discipling ourselves, formative habits that teach us God doesn't really care about how we live. Faithfulness really doesn't matter. Which brings us to the next practice of a God-fearing church. Because God is holy and the gospel is true, we confess sin and find support as we fight against it. We confess sin and find support as we fight against it. There's an excellent, provoking book that uh, I studied years ago with my men's small group. Some of them are in here. It's called Red Like Blood, and it's written by a man named Joe Coffey and Bob Bevington. And Bevington was a guy, he shares his story. It's pretty raw, uh, so I wouldn't recommend the book for everybody, but um, it's a pretty raw telling of the story of how he tried to destroy his own life. He, he uh, destroyed his family uh, by his sin and, and really kept trying to destroy his life. And into his life came a man named Joe Coffey. And, and Joe Coffey was a friend and was patient and knew the gospel and held the door of mercy open for a man whose life was very, very broken. It's a powerful story. They interplay. One writes a chapter, the other writes a chapter, and they just go back and forth about what happened and how the story unfolded. In Bevington, uh, he talks about dishonesty and how dishonesty is really what began to wreck his life, deception. And he uses the metaphor of spinning cobwebs. And then he talks about how the first time that he went to an AA meeting, and he said, I went with my wife to our first AA meeting, and here's how he tells the story. We went inside, and I looked around the hall and saw people from just about every walk of life. I take that back. Every walk of life that group of people had been on must have been hard. I could see the pain and the wear and tear on their faces, some more than others, but it was unmistakable in all of them. The interesting thing was that no one tried to hide it. 
As far as I could tell, there wasn't a cobweb in the place. These people seemed like they had already used up their lifetime quota of lies, and now they gathered in this room and took turns stepping out into the light. And he talks about just the simple practice of saying, my name is, and I am a, and how it's just a, it's a formative practice of stepping out into the light that would later convince him of the need for the church to be a community like that, where you could come out and you could say, here's how bad it's been. Here's how deep the struggle has been. Here's what this week looks like. And he says that the church should be that community. The church should be a community free of cobwebs, where nobody has to hide, nobody has to lie, nobody has to deceive. Understand, friends, that the gospel creates a culture of safety. The mercy of God creates a culture of safety where no one needs to pretend where every sin has its answer in Jesus. <laughs> That's a, can that be us? That's the church. Every sin, no matter what you've done this week, no matter what your life has looked like these past several years, no matter what addiction you're in the throes of, the answer that we have for you is Jesus. And the promise we have is mercy. Step out into the light. There's mercy out here in the light. The God who knows the worst about us died to forgive it all and invites us into a community of good news. That's why we center around a message of the Bible that's at the center of the Bible, the message of the gospel. We don't have to hide. Why, don't we, why do we not have to hide? Because the only perfect person in our midst saw the ugliest thing you ever did and didn't flinch. He ran toward you with mercy. He offers complete forgiveness. <laughs> so what kind of culture does that create in the church? The more we, confident the gospel is true, open up the ugly places in our hearts, the more beautiful we become. That's the road to beauty. That's the road to Christ-likeness. It's not an end run around so that we don't have to show the parts of us that are embarrassing. It's kind of funny how the text says no one dared join them, and yet, look down and verse 13. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Verse 14, believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. You, you see the irony there? No one dared join them, that is, except these multitudes. Now, from the start in the book of Acts, do you remember the sign of the Spirit's presence among his people? Fire over the head of every disciple. There, there's something about fire that uh, has radically alternate effects, right? Fire scatters and fire gathers. Fire is good, but it's not safe. Fire warms, but fire exposes. If we do this right, local church is the adventure of knowing and praising the good, but not so safe God and throwing our lives into his good but not so safe mission together. That's where the magic is. 